0: the official podcast for the Collegian's news section. My name is Chris McLaughlin and I'm one of the assistant news editors. The Massachusetts Daily Collegian is the only student-run print and online newspaper here on the UMass campus, serving this community since 1890. We're recording today's episode on Sunday, March 21st, but this, like every installment of our podcast, will be released online a little later after the recording. Joining me to recap the stories we've covered over the past few weeks are the rest of the news team. So if you guys could all introduce yourselves.
1: I'm Cassie McGrath, the news editor. I'm Irina Kostakit, assistant news editor. I'm Sophia Gardner, assistant news editor.
2: And I'm Will Catcher, assistant news editor.
0: All right, great to have everybody here. I kind of want to start out with the topic we usually start out on lately, and that's COVID-19. And recently, we just put out a special issue here at the Daily Collegian to mark one year since lockdowns and quarantines began across the country. So we had a timeline of basically every single article and every single thing that's come through the Collegian in the past year that is related to COVID and COVID developments in Amherst on campus relating to students. And so um, I'd recommend checking it out. Really, it's a time of reflection because we have been in this for a year and so much has changed. So I kind of wanted to get your guys' thoughts on where you were a year ago and where you are now and, you know, what you've covered and how you're feeling about the situation when you're in.
3: I remember talking about this, like, on the podcast, and we went remote last year, Um, and I remember, like, I talked about this also in the photo section of the uh, special issue, but I was, I remember I was, like, in web design with um, professor Josh Braun and I got the notification from the Boston Globe that UMass is closing for two weeks after spring break and I was like oh my god and I started like shaking because you know when you're just like I need to write now like I can't wait like but I'm in class so I can't start writing and also we haven't even heard this from the university yet and then we got the email and I just I love that class I didn't know I could he could have been like speaking in gibberish and I wouldn't have known. I was just so focused on getting to the newsroom. And I remember like sprinting down all four <laughs> like, stairs from the ILC, like down the stairs into the office and everyone was like there that was on staff like from every section. And we were just trying to get out what was going on. And like, that was my last time ever in that office which is working in that office. So it's really sad to think about. And like at the time we did think we were coming back. So nothing felt real, I remember, because the only thing we were thinking about like as a newsroom was getting out the article. So personally, I didn't process any of it that was happening. Two days later, we got the news like that Friday afternoon that we weren't coming back for the semester. Um, and I remember a lot of stuff at the time was like, why didn't they just tell us before? Now we all have to come back and move our stuff out and like all of that. But still, like I wasn't really thinking about it. And then I was standing in the line at Blue Wall and was like, wait, what if I'm not ever in blue ball until senior year? But at the time we were like, okay, well, we'll be back in the fall. Like no one really understood because we had never experienced something like this Um, life-changing and devastating, I think. Well, I I should say me, I haven't personally. So it was just really disrupting in a way that like I could never have thought that we'd still be living through it last March at the time. But then- as we went into the summer, it was just focusing on what is going to happen to UMass in the fall. So there was press conferences with Chancellor Subaswamy and there were just kind of preparations like debates the RAPM union and the university. And that's kind of what I remember from the summer.
4: I just think the timing is so interesting because if you think back to a little over a year at this time, we were all packing up our stuff and leaving campus for, I mean, I haven't been back since. Um, And then this year, around the same time, we get the email that says that everyone will be eligible for the vaccine on April 19th. So kind of comes full circle and it's looking a little more hopeful now, which is nice after a year of things being kind of looking kind of negative.
2: So exactly one year today, this morning at let's see, checking my calendar, 430 in the morning. Um, I was arriving on an 11 hour flight back into the country from Israel and then getting home. And uh, my mom telling me that, you know, because I'd been on a plane and I might have coronavirus that uh, she got me a new toothbrush so that it, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be bringing it in on, on my toothbrush. And she, you know, had done all these weird precautions. We, we would be washing our vegetables when they got back from the market and all these things that, you know, it, they seemed like the right things to do at the time. And they probably didn't protect us that much. But I remember my brother being very upset that he couldn't hang out with his friends for two weeks after having it got home from school. And it was, uh, the theme was there was a lot we didn't know. We're back. It's still March 2020. And um, I think we're almost there. So hopefully we are not, hopefully we're not doing this next March. And I think if we we keep it up, we won't be.
1: Yeah. um, I think something that's been interesting to watch from like a reporter standpoint, and also just from a student standpoint is how UMass has been communicating a lot of things regarding COVID since a year ago. So like Cassie mentioned, you know, they had originally told us, oh, you guys are going home for two weeks. And then two days later kind of sprung on us that actually would just be for the full semester. And then last fall, a lot of students were supposed to come back, but two weeks before they suddenly notified people that they wouldn't be able to come back or a certain percentage would not be eligible to come back. Um, So it seemed like there was a lot of like lack of transparency and like very last minute notification. Um, And I'm sure that there are some things that are similar and still the case this semester, but it has seemed like the university has been a little bit more proactive recently with telling us what's been going on, um, specifically in terms of something that we're going to talk about, which is like students acting out during Blarney and like just other COVID violations. And they've been very proactive of telling us like what steps they're taking and like how they're trying to approach um more gatherings. So just watching like how the university has been um dealing with this and like the transparency that they've had is interesting. And I'm kind of continue to be interested in just how they're like sharing that information and with what timeliness they're doing it.
0: Right, exactly. There's definitely been um shifts in how COVID's been talked about from the administration and as a whole. I know like you said, Will, like back in the early days of the pandemic, everyone was on high alert. They thought it could come from anywhere and everywhere. Um, now we obviously know more about how it's transmitted, and um, while people haven't let their guard down necessarily, the situation has clearly evolved over the course of a year. And now I think a lot of people are seeing this light at the end of the tunnel um, in many ways with the rollout of the vaccines, which has progressed more and more. And like Sophie said, here in Massachusetts, starting in mid to late April, everyone in the state will become eligible to get the vaccine. And so we're seeing like different things, like it's like a push and pull, um, kind of like a tug of war where it's like you have moments where things are tightened up, like we saw with the Blarney parties that happened over St. Patrick's Day earlier this month, where there was like 200 students and they're facing disciplinary actions for a large party. And at the same time, There's also an easing of things in many ways, um, such as the self-sequester is now over. It's been over for several weeks. And UMass recently said, hey, we're actually going to have an in-person commencement. It's not going to look like a traditional commencement. It's going to be four separate ceremonies divided by college or the school that students are enrolled in for the class of 2021, and no guests are going to be allowed, but it's a step in the right direction probably for many people. So definitely an evolving situation and very strange to reflect on one year in, kind of wanting to pivot. Will, you recently talked to Chancellor Subaswamy about all of this one year into the pandemic, and I kind of want to get more of what you got from him and what happened with that interview and the state of the university one year into the pandemic.
2: Yeah, so I spoke with the chancellor last uh, Friday, so a week ago from this past Friday, and we talked about a lot of stuff, and he was very candid and frank uh, in his assessment of of a few specific topics. He he was very honest that he didn't expect until Charlie Baker, Governor Charlie Baker, declared a state of of emergency that uh, he didn't really have a a sense of how big this thing would be. You know, in the weeks after that, I think it quickly became apparent to him. Uh, A few... a few highlights, um, highlights of the interview, you know, things that, that stood out to me were his admission that they didn't really have the testing capacity last fall. So I guess around August, when, you know, US had built up this, this uh, reopening plan for the fall, and then they were one of many colleges that pulled back and said, we're actually going to be going to minimum capacity on campus. Part of the reason there, they were seeing a surge in cases all over the country, knowing that they had students coming from all these places. They didn't feel like they had the the testing capacity built up yet that they could safely bring all those kids back with the with the cases spiking. But uh, beyond that, I think something that was really interesting was his his belief that, that UMass was as prepared as it could be for the spring. So he was you know talking a little bit about how with the uh, the, the spiking cases that that started you know in the first two weeks of campus, his belief was kind of in line with those who said who would say that you are dealing with young, immature students that that they have to take responsibility. It was not really in his belief that the school should be at all responsible for the student behavior. So he was saying that even with the best lead plans, as much as they could prepare, they don't have total control. And he thought that they were entirely prepared for the spring. And we'll leave that up to the listeners to decide, I think, about whether or not they were totally prepared. But what we know is that uh, at least their contact tracing system was overrun. So whether that reflects a lack of preparation, I don't know, but it does reflect a contact trace contact tracing system that wasn't ready for the spiking cases that they had.
4: I think in terms of preparedness for the fall, we've seen kind of over and over again this issue where there's no one responsible for breaking up gatherings because UMPD will say, you know, we're not we're not the COVID police. And then it's not really Amherst police jurisdiction when it's on campus or, you know. Um, UMass students, um, especially fraternities, because they're on, on campus why they're, you know, a branch of UMass. Um, and I think that is kind of speaks to UMass's preparedness, because you would think that while it may not be the university's job to, while the university might not be able to predict how students are going to act, they can have structures in place um, to deal with the possible actions of students which they didn't seem to in terms of specifically gatherings so I think that that's something to consider when we're looking back at how the university prepared for this fall.
2: Yeah and uh, you know along that along that too um, is this kind of idea of whether or not they have put these RAs in the right position because the reason that Amherst police or UMass police don't break up these gatherings is because they're not really laws they're public health guidelines. So there's not much that the police can do. And with UMass, you know, the reason UMass could break these up is because we're students here and we play by their rules. So they, when they set a guideline and then have a largely educational approach around enforcement, which is the correct public health approach, but it's still, you know, there's still many students who are going to be breaking guidelines without really fear of repercussions. So I think that's kind of like the situation they've put a lot of these RAs in is that RAs don't feel that they, uh, and they tell us that they they don't feel that the school has, is going to essentially bring these cases fully forward. They think that they see, they see a a gathering of 20 people to say, I could write it up, but what am I doing going in there and interacting with 20, 20 people for these kids to get a letter that says, just a reminder, here's what the guidelines are.
3: I think something that like has been undercovered like even like by us is like the day-to-day struggles of students as well and especially like the grief of this time period I think it's like really hard it's just like exceptionally hard for students sometimes to even like get out of bed in the morning having faced like such a lack of normalcy and loss and so in like the context of like like last semester and some of the conversation personal conversations I've had it's been it was like of like oh my god like last semester it was awful like the lack of breaks we had i was like so burned out which is very much happening again um but i think that people had like the spring to look forward to last semester and then we got the news pretty early that the spring wasn't going to be really any different um of course more people are back now but in terms of like day-to-day lifestyle of a lot of the students that I've personally socialized with who are upperclassmen, like you're living off campus still, you may have one in-person class if you're lucky. So I think that like there's been this kind of like new normal that it's really easy to forget that individual days are really hard for students. And like and I think about this last year as like a journalist, I think it's really shown the importance of student media more than ever because the the coverage that we have done at UMass would not exist. Otherwise. But at the same time, like as a person, I'm thinking like there's long stretches when every single day was really, really hard, but it was just constantly pushing through because hopefully someday we get better. And now that we have vaccines on an actual timeline, it's much more stable, I think, for at least me personally. Like when I got the commencement news, my parents were like, oh my God, that's so great. And for me, like I was like, having a really hard time with it because I thought I had accepted that nothing in senior year was going to be like what I had originally expected, but that seemed like kind of like a stark reminder of that a lot of us will never get the day, like a day you can never get back, which is graduation from college. And it will never be what we ever wanted it to, which in the relative to what we're going through it's nothing and relative to what it could be the worst case scenario it's also not bad but I think because we're constantly being fueled into like this silver lining (laughs) pipeline it's like sometimes you just need to let yourself think about it and I think that's something that students are still very much experiencing and I think it's important for the collegian to like address um, because that's like the very real reality for a lot of students whether whatever they're going through.
0: You know, Cassie, that's something I feel like a lot of people are experiencing is it's been one of the worst years that probably anyone alive has been through. Um, I feel like that's not an exaggeration. You're right about this trap of, well, at least it's not the worst case scenario, but it's a grieving process. You have to let go of so many things that should have been there for you. And it's something we as students are Constantly having to come to terms with and grapple with, especially as we're still going through the motions of classes and extracurriculars and jobs and responsibilities. And it's hard to navigate. And I think you're right about there finally being this light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccines. It feels like there's measurable progress now, but we're still kind of in it. And I think, like Sophie said, just a lack of breaks just constantly being in it and getting burnt out it's definitely something that a lot of people are feeling related to all of this when you're in hopefully maybe in a future recording of this podcast we will have some vaccinated assistant news editors and news editor and we'll be in a better place and now kind of switching subjects the other thing big topic that i wanted to discuss was the recent black history month special issue that the collegian did because this past February, like every February is Black History Month. And it's always super important to recognize the Black community here in the US. And I think this special issue really highlighted a lot of different aspects of Black History Month. And I kind of wanted to get your guys' thoughts on how you think it came out and just the importance of having this special issue in place um, to commemorate this month.
4: One of the things that I realized when I was writing my piece, I wrote a piece about James Baldwin, who taught here in the '80s. But something I hadn't realized about UMass before was, in the '70s and the '80s, the later '70s and the 1980s, it was kind of this hot spot for Black thinkers and intellectuals and even musicians, because our jazz department was really um, groundbreaking, and I think. That's a part of UMass history that gets overlooked often, but it sounds like such an amazing time at UMass. And I I wish that it hadn't been kind of, I don't want to say forgotten, but I wish that it was still talked about more. And I wish that UMass kind of, I don't think it really is that anymore. We still have a lot of incredible African-American professors and thinkers here, but it's not really the groundbreaking Hotspot for that kind of thought that it was before. I think that's in part because we had one of the first Afro-Am departments that was fully formed, um, which really attracted a lot of Black intellectuals to the Amherst area. But I think we've lost some of that along the way, and I think it's that's something that's really interesting to reflect on.
1: Yeah, I also did a story about like um, the history of. Black student and faculty presence at UMass and that was something I also learned which is that there just were so many amazing faculty that came through here and a lot of amazing performers but something that I also took away that I think is very important to note is the fact that historically the collegian has just not been very welcoming and representative to a lot of the black student population at UMass when I was writing my story I learned a little bit about how around the I want to say 70s and 80s um, Black students at UMass came out with their own alternative newspaper called Numo News just because the Collegian wasn't covering the stories that were important to Black students and other students of color. And it it still remains a predominantly white newspaper. Most of us are not people of color. So I think it just speaks to the fact that we need to be more responsible with our coverage there and just trying to get as many of those voices in our coverage as possible. And I think this Black History Month special issue was very important to that. And I just am looking forward to us continuing to try and like find those stories and seek out those voices and bring them into our newsroom as well.
3: Thank you for saying that, Irina. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I also wanted to note that it was an honor to speak with so many like absolute legends <laughs> for this social issue, like John Bracey and um, Judy Alvalali and um, Ernie Allen and more so many more people. Um, but I think it was cool because, um, you know, we talked about some like contemporary stories as well. The three of us here that wrote something all told a more historical uh, stories. So, like mine was on the new the history of the New Africa House, which was taken over 51 years ago, almost exactly, and um, was like a huge space for Black culture and community on campus, and about how like there was a barbershop and a restaurant and it was just like such a hopping space. And then it kind of just wasn't used the same and the basement kind of turned into a storage space. And professor Abulali, who I just mentioned went in with one of her theater classes and cleaned out the area, um, which was supposed to be renovated for years and years and she kept pushing for it. And I think the way she said it was that after the 2016 election, there was a uh, people needed to make theater and make art. Uh, which was just so inspiring. And, um, Now the space today was used for a play that I was in, so called McDeventure's Wrong Answer, which was intentionally used in the New Africa House and the space and then the scythe, which I talked about in the article. So of course, now spaces look very different during COVID times, but it's just such an incredible building on campus. And um, I think what's great about the special issue is that we learned so much uh, along the way. And we also learned that there's so many more stories to tell that we didn't. um, So we've, Definitely need to. Um, and I think lastly, um, well, it was an honor to see the people who were touched by the articles as well. And Trisha Loveland, who works in on um, the AfRM department, reached out and asked us for the special issue, which of course he couldn't print because again, it's COVID times, but um, just the fact that it was able to reach people who maybe hadn't heard these stories before or, were, or who had heard them, but got to read through them in a way That we told them was really cool. So I think, if anything, it shows that we need to be doing this work every single day and much more often than we ever have.
0: But yeah, Cassie, going off uh, your point, there's always, and Irina as well, there's always progress to be made in including more voices in our reporting. And while the Black History Month special issue is great, we still have many strides to make as a university and as a college paper to. Be more fully representative of the students and the community at UMass and this diverse community that we live in. And so, kind of leaving it off there. Um, I think that is going to do it for us today at the Collegian News Hour. Thanks for tuning in and join us next time. And once again, I'm Chris McLaughlin.
1: I'm Cassie McGrath. I'm Kostakis. I'm Sophia Gardner.
0: And I'm Will Catcher. And you've been listening to the Collegian News Hour. The music for this podcast was created by Joaquin Carude and promoted by Audio Library. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating if you enjoyed today's episode. It definitely helps us out. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.